Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing Chapter 8 from Age of Opportunity. But first, we have to weigh in on this hot topic, you know, Asha broke the internet yesterday with their notification that they are increasing the yearly membership rate from um, $225 to $250 base rate. So we're going to get into that, chime in, share our opinions, and then we'll cover chapter eight. So wow, Laura, oh my God, what is going on? The gall, the gall. (laughs) Well, I have to start by saying, Adrian, yeah, you brought this issue to my attention, I believe like the day fix SLP created their Instagram account. Didn't it feel like that? Yeah, I mean, it's been on my radar for a while, just like slowly gaining traction. I see other people that we follow talking about it. I'm always kind of surprised at who I see liking their posts. I'm like, oh, really? The SLP heavy hitters, I wouldn't expect, you know? Yeah, there are a few issues here, right? Yeah, there's the the C's. There's membership. There's CEUs. There's what is Asha actually doing for us? Okay. Yes. Where is the money going? Okay. So I have also seen. I wrote down some numbers. <laughs> okay, good. Because I have some figures in my head that I can't wait to drop. Um, so I've also seen friend of the podcast, Jenna castro Castron. She posted like a really great post on her Instagram explaining how if Asha had only justified why they're raising their prices, you know, have they done some continuing education? Are they bringing more value to the table? (laughs) Yeah, just like you would do if you were raising your prices as a private practice SLP, you know, you want to tell people why and she's like, nobody knows, you know? Yeah. So I started looking into Asha when we started our private practices. It was part of what lit the fire underneath me to go like, what is going on? Why are we paying all this money? Where is it going? Plus, this was kind of the beginning height of the pandemic, where I was like, wow, they're not I mean, the fact that they did not waive membership fees that first year in 2020 was crazy. Mm -hmm. 
And what did they do? Did they allow they access allowed us access to their learning, learning pass, pass. Mm-hmm. for like a year? Yeah. Was it for mm-hmm. a year or was it for a few months? I'm not sure. But that's when I started to realize I was like doing the math. How many SLPs are there in America? If every SLP and not even counting audiologists pays, you know, $225 a year, what are they raking in? And I don't know if you have those numbers, but the truth is, is it's $42 million a year. Yes. And it takes two and a half million dollars to run it. Yes. Okay. You have the numbers to run the CCC program. It costs Mm -hmm. them 2.4 million, but they're making Mm -hmm. 42.5 million off of us. And so what the ladies at Fix SLP say is that according to this, if it only costs 2.4 million to run the CCC program, it would be much more reasonable to charge SLPs between eight and $15 per year to maintain their C's. And then the membership price, which would be optional, could be higher for them to operate and do whatever they're doing for us. But it appears that all Ash's main goal is to make money because they're selling us this product, the certification. And what they're working to do is to make sure that as many employers, state licensing boards require the C's so that they can make more money. They're just working. They're not working on behalf of us. They're working to make sure that we keep paying them, right? Yes. And I would like to direct everybody's attention. If you're not already following, go to Fix SLP on Instagram. I checked in yesterday when this news broke to see how many followers they had. They had like 14,000 followers. And today I checked Uh they have 21.5 thousand followers. So, you know. You know what I'm impressed with is they're still personally responding to DMs. Like when their following is growing because I've been trying to join their Pumble. Yeah. And I posted on our stories. They got back to me, like responded to that. I asked about the Pumble link because it's not working. And they got back with like this long, long response and said that they could send me a personal invite. They are doing the work. And in the trenches. (laughs) These are not people who are like just sitting. This is not their main thing. I mean, I saw them on a live yesterday and they're in their scrubs. Yes. Like their kids in the backseat. No, she she was at the optometrist's office with two kids (laughs) doing a live to respond to this. She's all sorry. Breaking news. (laughs) Gotta go. (laughs) I mean, one of them is a PhD working at a university. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about whether we need to be ASHA members. Do we need our C's? I'm kind of thinking like, okay, I am a person who could walk the walk and talk the talk. I could drop my C's because I work for myself. We don't need C's to maintain a California license. No. And that's what's frustrating also is that they try to defend the C's by saying, oh, you know, this proves that your competence, right? That's what the C's stand for. Okay. Certificate of Clinical Competence. But it's like every state licensing board requires that you do continuing education. And in fact, in California, where we live, their requirements are even more stringent. I don't think they require quite as many hours as ASHA, but ASHA is a longer period because it's three years. California is two. But California requires live hours and ASHA does not. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, it's like if we just had our state license, that is proof enough of competence. The C's. What the C's are, I mean, it's showing that initially you completed a master's program 
you completed clinical work during mm-hmm. that master's program, you passed an exam, and then you did a year mm-hmm. super or nine months supervised, right? And then it's just proving that you are able to pay $200 every year, <laughs> right? Because the audits, I yeah. Mean, yeah, like it does not cost this much for them to do these random audits. I don't even know anybody who's ever been audited by them. Right. I mean, I heard, I've heard like- The fear is there though. Yeah, the fear is there. The fear really like got driven into us in grad school, like keep really strict. And you know, that's why I pay for the CE registry every year or every two years. You pay for that? I do because I'm like, I don't want to take, I don't want to keep track of like all these papers and stuff. I'd much rather just plug in my number and they do it for me. I have a really nice Excel sheet that I got on TPT for free for you to track but it is no of course it's confusing but I feel like they they do the multiple year what is it the three-year period versus our state license requires a two-year period so you're always kind of off like you're always doing this balancing act right so all I do is I try to attend as many CEUs as possible so I just know I'm way over like that's all you can do right but I do have a tracking an excel sheet for tracking your hours where you just plug it in really quick so that you can always kind of glance at it and go like, okay, I'm good. And I'm keeping track in case I got audited. Do not pay them for that stupid yeah. registry. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I have to. I mean, here's the question is like, should the registry even be an additional fee? Oh my. God. Like that is rude. <laughs> and then when you're checking out, when you're paying, right? And you're like, okay, like fine, I'll pay the 225. Fine, I'll pay the 35 or whatever for the registry. And then they're like, do you want to be part of a pack? Like, oh yeah. Or, isn't a that what it's called? Yeah. Oh a SIG. So you're like, okay, maybe I'll join this, which I don't even really know what the benefit of that is, besides do you get certain journal articles? You get spammed with a bunch of emails every time people post in a forum. Okay. <laughs> Love that. And then and I do remember from the ASHA conference, there's some sort of like I'll talk about this in a minute. We can talk about the conference as a separate topic. Since I'm the one who like most recently went to the ASHA, you know, it's like all fresh in my mind, which I do think the conference probably pays for itself with what they charge people for registration for the conference, right? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. And then they're like, after right after you've done all that, you've signed up. It's like so expensive in December. After you've bought all the Christmas presents, you're like flat broke. Yeah. They're like, would you like to donate? <laughs> Would you like to donate some money? I'm like, what? Yeah. How about you donate some money to me? If their goal was, if Asha worked on behalf of us to raise our pay, lower our caseloads, if they were advocating for us instead of advocating for themselves for the C's to be required, it seems to be that if you are offering a product and you're making a lot of money off of that product. I've been seeing a lot of people posting about the CEO's current salary, which is over $750,000. The main one. And then there's like three or four sub executives who make over 200 grand each. Yes. So when everybody's struggling, I mean, I'm seeing SLPs posting that their salary is $45,000 a year. And I think okay. these are full-time. I mean, I know I would different like to states. Pause. Okay. I have, I, have to talk, I have to talk about this because I am like always kind of looking for jobs, right? Like I'm happy with my contract company that I'm with right now, but you know, I'm looking for jobs for the summer or whatever. I'm also part of a lot of Facebook groups, like teletherapy, especially people will post the rates they're being offered. And it is like a downward trend. It is 
offensive. <laughs> and I'm seeing $45 an hour, $35 an oh hour. And then the concept of direct versus indirect time being paid. Like I get hit up by recruiters. They're like, oh, for this job, you know, we want to offer, we're offering between 50 and $60 an hour, which like not for me, but I guess. And also if you're desperate, you're not really in a position to negotiate with that. So you're trying to just take what you can get. And then they're like, and we even pay for indirect time. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. You're going to pay for time when I'm not directly doing therapy, which is when like- When I'm doing- paperwork writing reports reports planning <laughs> sessions talking to parents talking to other staff members <laughs> as if just the therapy time like we close our computers or we like shut the door we're like well we're done we're just gonna like kick back now yeah no way no it is absurd I mean I know that the district that I worked in okay to work in the district that I worked in you had to have your C's so paying for your C's every year your state, your license, of course, you had to be credentialed. But then I'm also seeing this issue where, you know, it's kind of like no one knows where SLPs stand. If we are, if we have to have our teaching credential, then we're on the teacher pay, right? Like I know that OTs were on the same scale as psychologists in my district and they made way more, you know, way more. Mm. And they advocated better for themselves. Their caseloads were way lower. Mm -hmm. They seemed way more relaxed. Their jobs seemed great. SLPs are tearing their hair out. And an OT would have like a caseload of 30, you know? (laughs) And you'd just be like, what's happening? Uh, Yeah. I have always known the OTs to be pretty relaxed. Uh Great for them. You know, OTs and PTs, they don't have an ASHA set up. They have like a... National organization that is optional to join. Yes. There's probably some benefits. Yes. Um, so those are but, both. They do not sell certification. So you, you right. do not have to be a member to get certain jobs or, you know, it's or to supervise. Um, so that's a big issue. The supervision. There are a lot of people. How can we advance our field? How can we get more people mm. into the field? If people start drop, we can't just drop our C's. The whole system has to change first. So it's one thing to just say, yeah. like, everybody just don't become a member. And then you could still probably, like, some people could still practice. Right, <laughs> right, right. If they have a job that doesn't require them. But we need people to have their C's to work at accredited universities, supervise students who also have the goal of getting their C's. But Fix SLP presents this as an MLM. I know. And I've been hearing that too. And it's the truth. I mean, it does feel like an actual racket. And we're all just kind of chained to it with no option. And I would like to point out, well, first I have a story. So the first time I ever heard of somebody not having their C's, it was during my CF year. And it was like crazy. I would like blew my mind. So my first CF year, there was like problems within my district of finding me a supervisor. So I think I had two different supervisors during that year. But I was full, I was pretty much like four days a week at a high school, but I was one day a week at an elementary school. And the full-time SLP there, I loved her. She was really seasoned. She was great. We were spending time together, you know, because I was like working with her. And I remember asking her, why can't you just be my supervisor? I already work with you. We're on site together. It makes more sense. And she was like, well, I don't have my C's. 
And I was like, what? And it was like, so like, I've never even considered the option, which is also something we should think about is like the indoctrination that happens during grad school. Yes. But what had happened is that she was a contracted employee with the district. And she was the only one that we basically had in our entire district. We had like 50 SLPs and she had just been with the same contract company for like 35 years and they Mm -hmm. just kept her with the district. And also her husband was the director of our special education program. Mm -hmm. So like, of course, her husband is like, sure, keep her coming, keep her coming. And then she just let her seize lapse and it didn't matter because she was not seeking new employment. Yeah. Her contract company wasn't bugging her for them. The school district wasn't bugging her for them because her husband was her boss And so she was just like living her great life. And she was like railing about the seas to me. Like, I just think it's BS. I think that all they want is our money. I don't see the benefits. So I just don't have them. And that was like my first exposure. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think that was an option. Yeah. And I feel like when you first presented it to me, I was like, you know, what they count on is people just blindly following and not asking questions. Right. And that's what I was doing. I was like, What's the big deal? Doesn't everybody have to pay these types of things to be in their profession? You know? Right. And for a long time, it didn't matter to me because I worked for a contract company that gave me, I don't know, like 800 a year for continuing education and license maintenance. So I felt like Mm -hmm. it didn't really impact. I was like, well, the company I work for basically pays for ASHA and CASHA and then a little bit more so I can pay for CEUs. And my company provided CEUs. So yeah. I don't know. It's it's just everybody. Right. I think there might even be people listening who haven't questioned this ever because all of us just do kind of blindly follow, believe that ASHA is working in our best interest and, you know, we're happy to pay it. You know, when you sent me that, I was like, what's the big deal? It's $25. But the big deal is that people were already this year, especially really questioning where this money goes, why we have to have it, why they claim it's optional when it is not really. Yes. And Asha's being pretty shifty about it. They're not responding to inquiries really. So the fact that they answer, I've seen people say it seems pretty retaliatory that they hear our cries and they answer by raising the dues. Read the room, Asha. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Ridiculous. Yikes. Yeah. And I just want to direct everybody, if you're feeling fired up about this, if you want to do something about it, you can go to Fix SLP. They have started a change.org petition. Yeah. So I feel like the petition is gaining a lot of ground. Um, I saw it yesterday, maybe an hour after they posted it. There was like 400 signatures. Now there's over 7,000. Yeah. Um, And the purpose of the petition, because I think what's hard about this is it's like, what can we do to fix this? Because it's like you said, Laura, it's systematic. It's really complicated. Sometimes it feels like David and Goliath. Mm -hmm. And I do think like with our scope being so wide and our jobs being so demanding, we are stretched thin and it's hard to energy towards fighting this thing. Right. Right. Yeah. So the petition is to asha from claiming that the c's are optional because they're not in a lot of states 
And if you look at the petition, they have these fantastic links, link after link after link of how ASHA is using our money to lobby the states to require the seats. <laughs> this is absurd. So when they say they're out there lobbying, um, they are lobbying against us. Yes. And you know what I also want to mention is because we pay for ASHA dues and we have to, I know that both you and I have let this last year our CASHA, our, our state memberships go because we're like, oh, well, we have to, you know, yeah. it's like kind of like you have to pick one, but there's no choice on one. So it's just a lot of money. We, you know, the state, I bet a lot of state organizations suffer because right. everyone feels that they have to pay for it. I mean, everyone does pay for ASHA. They have to. And then to pay your state dues on top of that. And that's where you can actually make more change. The state organizations being involved in them is more important, probably, for your career. Right. And so if we did have the option, if ASHA was an option yes. and people would join because they were actually working on behalf of who they're supposed to serve, and then you could also be joining your state. Because it's like when I worked in a school what is ASHA going to help me with my caseload? No, CASHA would be more likely. CASHA's helping to regulate the caseload caps in California. Yeah. Right? Right. Definitely. It's like, I, I can't go to ASHA. I would want to go to CASHA. This mm. is ridiculous that we have to make that choice and that we feel like we can't be as involved. So I think, I mean, I'm not sure. I think I might give up on this dream of supervising, which I want to do, but I want this whole system to change. So that we can supervise without being required to have these C's. This is so stupid. <laughs> so sad. Like it shouldn't be. Yeah. Because that's always, you know, that's always been a passion of mine. Like I want to supervise. I would love to supervise grad students. Yeah. I would love to teach a course at some point maybe. Yeah. So, but you know what? Maybe next year I will drop my C's and get more involved in Kasha. Yeah, but that's so sad, like that that's the choice you have to make because we need good supervisors. I mean, we were in a grad school clinic. We know you need a good supervisor. So yeah, that's true. For you to have to make that choice, like to help the new incoming grads or take like a political stand against like our organization supposed to help us. It's just <laughs> wild. Okay, so we don't all have to because even <laughs> at Fix SLP, one of them says yeah. she is she did not pay to renew this year, but she said there's a one year kind of grace period where she could make the decision because somebody has told her, like, actually, for you guys to further your cause, you probably do need to have your C's. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and the other one is a professor and supervises. She has so to. they want the system to change, but they are not able to drop their C's. So. All of us can't just go, I'm dropping them. Like, really, what we need is just change, right? Oh, yes. And before we wrap this up, one more thing. I saw somebody else talking on Instagram about how she has a template letter that you can send to your hiring person at your district that explains why they should not require the C's. So if you're mm -hmm. interested, I think that's another place where you can make a little change is just trying to inform because I doubt all these people who hire SLPs for districts or for medical facilities, they've probably never even considered this. They just go, well, you need them, you know. So that's something else you could do. Yeah. So I feel like that's something where if we join their Pumble and get involved with your state group that is SLPs who are supporting Fix SLP, but you could be connected with people locally 
because even like I feel like I could like scour the job openings and if C's are required then I could just send a letter <laughs> <laughs> Laura's out there pounding the pavement doing the <laughs> saying like this is a product this should not be required for employment we are licensed SLPs you know like <laughs> I know and that's also like so much of that so complicated with like hourly pay too we as a group need to stop accepting rates that are below us we need to be informing recruiters, you know, I'm worth so much more than this. Yeah. Excuse me, I have $60,000 of student debt. Yeah. Why would I accept $40 an hour? Like, that's a laughable joke. I have a master's degree. I do not think, with the amount of school we had to attend, our level of student debt, many of us, and how hard we work, I do not think any SLP working yes. full time should be making less than $100,000 a year. 100%. Is my feeling. I mean, how many people have to have second jobs? I see people all the time on Facebook groups like, hey, does anybody have any ideas for like how to bring an extra income on the side? I'm barely cutting it. I mean, I have a second job. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Some food for thought. Just us weighing in. <laughs> well, if you're listening to this and you're fired up, we're going to include a million yes. links in the show notes for you to sign that petition, check out Fix SLP. And, you know, let us know how you feel about it. We'll be putting up some posts on Instagram about this topic, I guess. Stay tuned as we discuss chapter eight of Age of Opportunity. It's going to say uniquely human. Age of Opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. 
If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. Chapter 8 is called Reimagining High School. So in this chapter, we're learning all about kind of the state of high school today, what impacts adolescence during high school, what impacts academic achievement, how we can do better, essentially. So once again, love Dr. Steinberg, but he does hit us with depressing facts right off the bat. You know, he's he's good for that all the time. And I like that. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Steinberg discusses how America's high schoolers have been placing well below the international average on standardized scores since about the early 80s. So every year the data comes out and there's a little bit of a hoopla about it and everyone tries to come up with reasons like, why could this be happening? Why are we below the average? But then everybody forgets about it again and goes back to normal until like the next headlines come out and then it happens again. So these poor test scores are only really seen in high school students. Elementary school students tend to score above average internationally and middle school students place somewhere slightly above average. What is holding back our high school students? A study was done that looked at a range of international high school students all over the world. It measured academic engagement, so if the students were attending classes regularly and getting there on time, and social engagement or belongingness, meaning if students felt like they fit into the student body, if they had friends, if they were liked by schoolmates. And U.S. high schoolers scored only at the international average for academic achievement, far lower than our chief rivals like China, Korea, Japan, and Germany. In those countries, students show up for school and go to classes more regularly than anywhere else in the world. However, the U.S. topped all four of those other countries when it came to social engagement. Only Germany was higher than the U.S. in that area. So this tells us that for American high schoolers, high school is really for socializing. And despite the stereotype we all know about that like stressed out Asian student, the suicide rate is higher in the U.S. than in China, Korea and Japan, which I'm sorry, I have to call him out when he does this because it's like there are so many things that can be affecting that stat alone. Yeah. Right. Like what about societal views on suicide? What about cultural views on suicide or family views to be like, well, and American kids kill themselves. I don't know. I just just kind of like there's so much that goes into that happening or not happening. And it's not just like social engage, like valuing social. And I do know, of course, since he already talked about this, that adolescents are more primed to be responsive to social interactions and drama and they place more value on that. So I understand, you know, that connection he's making. But overall, I don't know. I was a little bit skeptical about that. Hmm. Is he just making the point that a lot of times we think if we put too much pressure on kids that it will lead to them having thoughts like that? Like the college student at Stanford who just feels so overwhelmed and so much pressure. And he's saying, well, actually, usually it's kids who are more worried about social issues, not worried about their education or pressure. Is that that's all he's saying? Yeah, I'm not sure. I could have used a little more explanation. Yeah, because when you were talking about it, I was like, I don't even remember him saying this. So he probably went by it pretty quickly. He did. That's all he said about it. There was nothing else. So, of course, I'm like thinking further like, "Mm." okay, 
But anyway, just had to point that out. Yeah. So for the majority of high school students in America, everybody except for the very high achievers, like kids who are in AP classes, basically think that high school is tedious, unchallenging, and boring. Studies that look at American children's moods over the course of the day find that students are most bored during school. And their mood improves dramatically around 3 p.m. and also at the end of the week when the weekend is coming up. The majority of American high school students report that they are just going through the motions of school, trying to put in just enough effort to make sure they don't get into academic trouble. A third of American high school students say that they have basically no interest in school and only get through the day by having fun with their friends. So studies done on exchange students who've studied in America and American students who've studied abroad confirm that American high schools are less academically challenging than international schools. And Dr. Steinberg, again, then hits us with some like pretty depressing statistics about academic improvement and achievement across three different age ranges that have been researched for the past 40 years. So this specific data set looks at nine-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. There's been growth, like small but statistically significant, in reading and math for both the 9-year-olds and the 13-year-olds over the past 40 years. However, there has been absolutely no increase in success in the high school group over the past 40 years. Reading and math scores have remained the same. American high school students' achievement is also pretty depressing. So only 6% of 17-year-olds scored at the highest level of reading proficiency for their age, and just 7% of 17-year-olds scored at the highest level of proficiency in math. And there's been billions of dollars spent and tons of debates about the root of the problem, but literally nothing we have ever done has worked. This includes No Child Left Behind and every other experiment we've done. Charter schools aren't even better, really, than standard public schools, and there's no advantage to going to private school either once you kind of account for differences in family background. The difference in achievement between elementary schoolers and high schoolers isn't due to an increase in diversity, an increase in poverty, or student-teacher ratios. Teacher salaries also are the same for secondary and elementary school teachers, so that's not the reason for this difference. And it's hard to point to anything about American high schools themselves that tell us why they're performing so poorly when compared to high schools around the world and when compared to elementary and middle schools in the U.S., so it's been shown that high schoolers in America even spend more time in the classroom than their international peers. So why is this happening? The bottom line is that no change will be made if students don't come to school ready and able to learn. The fundamental problem with American high school achievement is not anything to do with our schools or our teachers. It's if parents don't raise their children in ways that allow them to maintain interest and attention in what their teachers are teaching, then it really doesn't matter how much schooling the teachers have or how much they're paid, or how much time the children are in the classroom, period. So what really needs to happen is that we need to change the culture of student achievement. And the reason that high school students from a lot of Asian and European countries outperform American teens is because their cultures give rise to higher expectations at home, and also more support for achievement within the adolescent peer group. Basically, it's not cool to be a nerd. It's not cool to be like super smart, really. People get made fun of. It's such a stereotype in America. But in these other countries, everybody wants each other to do well. And it's not this like kind of shameful, weird thing. In Asia specifically, parents demand much more self-control from their children at a much younger age. This makes me think of that. Is it that Netflix show? 
where it's like kids in Japan or something and they're like performing chores. Have you ever seen that? No. <laughs> oh my God. I can't remember what it's called. I think my sister told me about it. But basically it's like kind of a POV show where it shows these like three-year-olds. The parent will be like, go to the market and buy a banana. And you see them like navigating the streets of their neighborhood on their own, going to these stores and like encountering roadblocks. <laughs> And, like, you're, like, on this journey with them to try to, like, get the banana and bring it back home. Oh, my gosh. Are you looking for it? Should I Google it? I'm trying, but old enough. Old enough. Yeah, that's what it's called. Okay. So it's making me think about that show. Okay, I'm going to check that Um, out. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, by the time children and other cultures have become adults, they have much stronger self-control than American adults do. And right now he goes into a study about that. So a couple of chapters ago, he mentioned that big study he did that looked at like people in all different countries and they tested people's impulse control at different ages. So at age 10, they found a few differences between in self-control between Chinese and American children. I think the Chinese children scored about 10% higher in their self-control and the gap widened little by little each year. And by 14, the Chinese children scored 20% higher. And by 18, they scored 45% higher And in their 20s, the Chinese demonstrated 50% more self-control than the Americans. So this is most likely due to how the adolescents are raised. Yeah. We've seen growth in elementary school students because the non-cognitive skills needed to succeed are not required for elementary school students the way they are for high school students. So when you think back to like, oh, we've seen 9% improvement in their math and reading scores over these 40 years... It's probably because, you know, as children age and once they get to high school, the amount of executive functioning skills and self-control is so much higher. You're expected to do projects that last for months. You're expected to be self-motivated and adult support has pretty much been faded away. So students who have strong self-restraint and are able to delay gratification have a stronger advantage in high school than they do in elementary school. There are also fewer distractions in elementary school because they're not interested in like gossiping or drama or who's doing what the way that high schoolers are. Adolescent brains are more aroused by social information, which is an especially strong issue in a high school environment, especially ones that place a lot of emphasis on peer relations like high schools in the U.S. Students in other countries benefit from a culture that respects academic achievement rather than one that makes fun of it, like I just mentioned. So that's something to consider, too. There's a growing idea for rethinking secondary education to include more development of teenagers' healthy psychological functioning. And this is because people are learning that success in life is only partially determined by learning the academic skills that are taught in school. There are other factors that are much more important, like perseverance, determination, self-control, grit. And this could be a really good thing if we figure out how to do this. Because it's basically impossible for schools to anticipate the skills that will be needed as the labor force evolves. I have a few thoughts, but I'll stick, try to stick to one. I have a podcast recommendation that I just started listening to. And even if you're not into true crime, this is just interesting when you're thinking about this stuff that we're learning. It's called Murder 101. And it's about this high school class, a sociology class in Tennessee, where the teacher assigned as like the whole class for the whole semester that they would all work on these unsolved murders from over 30 years ago. Whoa. They had all these murders in the area of redheaded women 
and they like analyzed each one to see which ones definitely were performed by the same killer. They created a profile. Okay, this sounds good. No spoilers because I want to listen. Oh, well, if you even look up, there's only been two episodes. Oh, it if you look out. it up, it tells you already that the kids were successful, basically. <laughs> but you can hear when they're talking. Yeah. The determination The you know, <laughs> he immediately on the first day of, of the class, he was like, here's what we're going to do now. I forget what type of list he was like, create a list of like what we would be looking for if we were going to profile the suspect. Sure. And they had to create a list. And he goes, and I need at least 20 things. And if you guys can't come up with 20 good ones by the time we leave today, we're not going to do this project. And so all the kids are like trying to, and they're like (laughs) up to 19 and like class was about to end and none of them were even looking at the clock. They were engaged. They were so into this. Yeah. It has continued through the years. Like other classes have taken it on, but the kids that originally did it are still involved in it. Think of how much that changed their lives. And it's kind of like, how can we harness this? Not only were the kids like so engaged with each other, working together, but they also had this really, really big goal that they were working towards. And it's just, I mean, how do Mm. we like capture that and get kids engaged in that way? Not just solving murders, like other stuff. (laughs) But like that enthusiasm, right? Like all those stats in the beginning of this episode where it's like kids are bored in school, they're see it as something to endure rather than to like go to and be excited about yeah I have to ask Laura I mean that's really interesting I'm definitely going to listen to that podcast so thank you but I wanted to know what was your high school experience like did you feel that way were you just like going did you skip school Um, would you say you identified with those statistics no I mean I was a student athlete and like college bound from the you know from my freshman year I was taking courses and trying to get grades to have over a 4.0. I wouldn't say I was super, I would say around my junior or senior year, something shifted. Probably now I'm reading, I'm like, something shifted in my brain. My senior year English class, I've mentioned before, was phenomenal. Outstanding teacher. I can remember even just our summer reading she assigned the year before. The reading we had to do over the summer was so good. It's like, I think I read The Stranger. Yeah. All these books that I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like getting into like existentialism. And I can yeah. picture with these kids going to their, their class the same feeling that I had going to my English class. It also happened to be the last class of the day. So maybe we were all like on a little high. Sure. Because you're <laughs> we were like, like, we're about to get out of school. Your mood is increasing. Yeah. Yes. Um, But, you know, she'd have us like turn our once a week. We'd just like sit in a giant circle and have these discussions. And you always wanted to be really prepared and have all your reading done. We were reading Shakespeare and stuff because she made it so interesting and you wanted to be able to participate. Yeah. And the whole it wasn't just me being a nerd. The whole class felt that way. Whatever Mm. social group you were in, everybody was so engaged. And so Mm. I think that I mean, it's just those special teachers that do it. It's like something has to come together and you have like a magic. Because I had a friend that had the same teacher, but a different period, like second period. Mm. And her class was good, but like not as good as mine. It was like something magical in that class with that group of kids, the last period Mm. of the day. (laughs) But no, I was I was pretty engaged. I was very into the social stuff. It did have an impact on me on some days where I couldn't stop thinking about something, but overall very engaged Yeah, because the goal was college. Well, we're probably the wrong people to ask. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I would have to say the same thing. Like I never skipped school. Such like a trying to 
follow the rules and, you know, honors classes, AP classes. Yeah. I was pretty engaged, but like I do, I can relate, I guess, with like, obviously math was not my specialty. So like there were classes that were harder for me, but I definitely wasn't trying to like skate by. But of course, I knew a ton of kids like that. So my sister was definitely like that. (laughs) Anyway, okay. I was just curious about that. But I'm really am very intrigued about that podcast. I'm I'm really gonna listen to it. We'll put a link to it. Okay. We'll put a link to it in today's episode. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I like what he starts talking about here, which is this connection between parenting styles, which we talked about in chapter seven, and how that affects kids, especially in our, their futures as employees, right? So basically, a lot of experts agree that schools should focus on more general competencies that have value in a lot of different settings, like being able to work effectively with others, being able to develop and carry out long-term plans, knowing how to gather and use new information, which I think all of these things are in that project you were just talking about, like analyzing these like murders. Mm -hmm. It's like you're carrying out this long-term strategic plan. You're gathering and looking at data in a new way. You're thinking flexibly and creatively and regulating yourself, right? Because you have to be focused to complete this task. So Most employers agree that these are the skills that they're looking for when they hire new workers. And certain types of workplaces value certain skills. So blue-collar work, right, factories, things like that. In those settings, a good employee doesn't think outside of the box. They're just following instructions. They're looking at what's right in front of them, making sure everything looks perfect. They're not really thinking long-term. So when we think about the different parenting styles... Different parenting styles are preferred by different kinds of workers. So blue-collar workers tend to prefer more autocratic parenting because it mirrors what they've learned in their work experience, which is to follow directions, not question orders, have a lot of respect. But middle-class and professional parents tend to use an authoritative approach because it mirrors what they've learned in their work environments, which is to take initiative and have self-direction and flexibility. So for example, when a middle-class parent you know, sits their teenage children down for dinner and discusses expectations and consequences. The kids are encouraged to express their viewpoints. And it kind of is like the family's holding a meeting, which is pretty similar to probably what that parent does in their corporate workplace. And then if the teen has a question about the wisdom of a rule, like, why would I do that or whatever, they're not punished for questioning authority, but instead they're praised for thinking for themselves. So the employment opportunities for children who are raised in autocratic households are dwindling as we move away and start automating more of that blue collar work. So the jobs that have replaced them are the jobs that require the skills that are nurtured in those middle class households. And the psychological outcomes of authoritative parenting are also the skills that are required for success in four year universities where students are expected to show initiative challenge their professors, and carry out projects that take months to plan. And this might be why degrees from community colleges, like the two-year associate's degree, is no longer as lucrative as it once was. So what we're focusing on right now in schooling is incomplete because it ignores non-cognitive skills. And there's a really great need for schools to encourage the development of these things like perseverance and determination And this is especially true for economically disadvantaged students because they are more likely to grow up in autocratic households and therefore they're not getting those skills fostered in that environment as much. So encouraging these skills is also important because this kind of inner strength helps prevent against developing problems like depression, obesity, delinquency, 
and substance abuse. And these problems come from a lack of self-regulation. So anything that schools can do to kind of encourage those good traits will have benefits that are far-reaching and help with adolescents' physical and psychological well-being. Then he started talking about a program. I've never heard of this, Laura. I don't know if you have, called KIPP, which is an acronym for Knowledge is Power Program, K-I-P-P. It's been incorporated into 150 charter schools across the country. At the beginning, I was like, wow, this thing sounds awesome, but it kind of takes a turn. It was a little confusing. So this program is aimed at kids from low-income families and strives to increase college enrollment by combining an emphasis on traits that are proven to increase academic success, like high expectations, parental involvement, and time spent on instruction with an additional focus on developing seven specific character strengths, which are zest. Love the word zest, by the way. I was reading this. I was like, ooh, zest. (laughs) Zest, grit, self-control, optimism, curiosity, gratitude, and social intelligence. So Kip has a long record of impressive accomplishments. And if you're interested, there was a book written about it called How Children Succeed. So you can look into that. The students that attend these charter schools have higher rates of high school graduation, college enrollment, and college completion than students from similar backgrounds who attend more traditional kinds of schools. And these students also show higher than expected gains on various measures of achievement. However, it's not all positive because additional studies were done that showed that these children did not show any advantage on any of the measures of those seven character strengths. So they weren't more effortful or persistent. They didn't have more favorable academic self-concept or stronger school engagement. They did not have higher rates of self-control, and they were more likely to engage in undesirable behavior like losing their temper, lying to and arguing with their parents, being rude to teachers. They were also just as likely to smoke, drink, use drugs, and break the law. And while 90% of these kids enrolled in college, only a third actually graduated. I feel like he left out one really important statistic because he did not let us know if they had more zest. And what about the zest? <laughs> how do you, ca- how how do do you, you measure, measure zest? zest? <laughs> and that's the question. <laughs> Wow. Maybe we have to read the book, How Children Succeed, and then we can figure it out. I think I bought it once. I think I bought it this year for book club and then was like, eh, this wouldn't be a good book for us. I'm intrigued, though. Yeah, you can borrow my I'm copy. I'm very curious. <laughs> um, the results echo what we've heard in previous chapters. So you can tell kids about health issues or character traits in school and increase their actual knowledge, but it won't necessarily change their behavior. And this is telling us that there's more than just encouragement that's needed to develop self-regulation in teenagers. There's been a lot of conflicting studies about how to actually improve executive functioning skills. So now he's going to go over the things that have actually been proven to work because a problem with a lot of these studies is that they haven't been done over a long enough period of time or they only show results that are positive or, you know, results that show up in a really tightly controlled setting. But once they're kind of tried to be tested in the real world, it like doesn't happen. too many um, factors that Mm -hmm. we just can't control. So he's kind of looking at like overall what seems to be kind of good. So the most promising efforts to improve self-regulation fall into five categories. 
exercises designed to improve one or more specific aspects of executive functioning, practices devoted to increasing mindfulness, aerobic exercise, physical regimens that require intense concentration, and specific strategies designed to boost self-control or improve the ability to delay gratification. So keep in mind that a lot of these studies haven't been done specifically on teens, but because of plasticity, we can assume that if it worked in adults, it would work on teens. And one of the most important executive functioning skills is working memory. So hopefully you guys listened to The Seeds of Learning, which was a book that we've covered before and talked a lot about this. So obviously working memory is especially important for self-control because you need to be able to keep your long-term goal in mind. And the best known working memory exercise is called the N-back test. So basically a person is shown a sequence of letters or other items one at a time, and they have to indicate if the letter they were shown next is the same as the letter that appeared N letters ago. So like it would be pretty easy if it was two letters ago, but you can increase it to like five and then it would be obviously trickier. So for example, if you were doing like a three back test and the sequence was F, J, D, U, T, D, you would say no when it asked like three letters back was F because the one you're looking at is D. You would say no if it was J, but you'd say yes because, you know, three back was D and that matches the one you're seeing now. So there's a lot of free versions. If you want to try this test online, uh, we did. Did you try it? I did. I did. <laughs> Were you good at it? It was harder than I thought it would be in the beginning, you know what? I think. That that thing was so clunky. I feel like I got, I was getting 80%, but it's because sometimes yeah. I would click and it would go bad. <laughs> and I was like, it was, <laughs> no. like, that definitely was one. I don't know. I know. I was like, it, reading it, you think, oh, well, that's fine. But it makes me think of a lot of the IQ tests that, yeah, like the Wexler and stuff where they have that long list. It's like, it's hard. Yeah. Remember, remembering serial orders of yeah. numbers. Uh, researchers say that working on one executive functioning skill, like working memory, probably won't work to increase other executive functioning skills. If you practice the guitar, you'll get really good at the guitar. Maybe you'll get a little bit better at playing the piano because there's some overlap in the skills, but you probably won't see an improvement in your math skills. However, parts of our brain are responsible for doing many things. So strengthening one area might result in a cascade of improvements in other areas. It just depends on which area of the brain you are strengthening. Mindfulness meditation, which we've covered multiple times on the podcast before, is where you really focus on the present moment without any judgment. Mindfulness meditation becomes easier with time, and because it forces us to control our breathing and attention, it might strengthen our ability to regulate our thoughts, feelings, and actions. Aerobic exercise has been shown to improve brain health because it increases blood flow. So ongoing exercise, like working out over a period of weeks or months, may have a positive impact on executive functioning, but these effects are probably more due to the exercise itself requiring challenging thinking as well as physical exertion. So we shouldn't be surprised that engaging in school-sponsored organized athletics seems to promote self-regulation and initiative. It's hard to know if this is due to the exercise, the cognitive demands, or a combination of the two. So basically he's saying like if you're playing football, you're engaging in aerobic activity, but you're also thinking critically about strategy, where you should go, what you should do next in the moment, 
So those are all good things. The same can be said for mindful physical activity like yoga or martial arts. These seem to strengthen the development of self-regulation, most likely for the same reason as aerobic exercise, which is the combination of exercise and the mindfulness or self-discipline needed to actually do the activity. Teaching self-regulation skills and strategies can improve adolescents' capacity for self-regulation. Schools that use social and emotional learning use programs that teach adolescents how to regulate their emotions, manage stress, and consider other people's feelings before acting. These programs have been shown to improve self-regulation in teenagers, even those who don't suffer from the problems that the programs were designed to tackle initially, like aggression and delinquency. The programs that work best can be described with the acronym SAFE. They have activities that are sequenced, they are active and allow students to practice the skills. They focus on SEL and they're explicit in targeting a specific social or emotional skill and concentrate on developing it. Something else that can work is called mental contrasting with implementation intentions or MCII. And this is when students are encouraged to envision a goal and imagine the positive consequences for achieving it. Think of a potential obstacle and a strategy for overcoming it, and then they make a written or verbal commitment to use the strategy if they have to. For example, a student might be asked to describe a positive academic goal for the semester, like getting better grades in math, fantasize a bit about the best thing that would result from that, like maybe their parents would increase their allowance. Then they need to think of a potential obstacle, like maybe the math problems will be too hard, and then think of a way to overcome it. Like if they don't understand something, they'll stay after class and ask for extra help. The studies show that students who were taught and encouraged to use MCII showed greater improvements in their grades, better school attendance, and better school conduct than students who were just encouraged to think positively about an academic goal, what they might get if they achieved it, but were not encouraged to map out a strategy if they encountered an obstacle. So try that for yourself. Might be helpful. These programs are designed to train self-regulation strategies, and they seem to have effects above and beyond the specific target of the intervention. So, for example, helping kids regulate their emotions can lead to an improvement in their grades, even though it has nothing to do with academic achievement initially. And these trainings are successful because they're stimulating. So if something seems boring, it'll probably turn the students off and make them not want to participate. And this means that the activities need to be demanding and challenging in that zone of proximal development. The activities need to be sustained over time as well with regular practice. So this looks like repetition that's structured to improve performance, and it needs to be slow, methodical, and purposeful. Schools can encourage practice by incorporating training exercises into other classroom activities throughout the day. Like you could work on memorizing and working on that working memory by maybe memorizing foreign capitals, chemical elements, other lists of things. You can also encourage activities like aerobic exercise, team sports, yoga, martial arts, and meditation. It's sad that a lot of schools have started to cut back this physical time for kids because they really benefit from it, especially intellectual and mental health, not just physical health. So those are just some things to keep in mind if you feel like uh, you're looking for some ways to help students, maybe try to build in a little bit of aerobic activity, really encourage that. I think it would be so fun in a school to incorporate that working memory, like maybe every teacher picks a different um, 
capital, state capital, like he talked about, and they write it on their board. And you have to remember from class to class the different oh. capitals you saw throughout the day. Like, I think there could be ways for the yeah. whole school to be on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it was really interesting. And in the next chapter, we're going to learn about socioeconomic status and how this prolonged adolescence has really impacted the poorest families the hardest. Oh, I do have to tell you one thing before we go. Yeah. Um, today, I when we were going to record, it's the day my pool guy comes. And I was like, we're going to be recording. I sit by the window that looks in the backyard and my dogs are going to start barking. Yeah. I was like, he's going to come while we're recording. So all morning I'm stressing. Like I'm like, yeah. then I'm going to have to pack up all my stuff and move to another room and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then I thought about that thing that you just described where they like teach them to think of the obstacles. Plan for the obstacle. And I was like, you've already, you've already identified the obstacle. Like your dogs are going to bark while you're trying to record the podcast. Sure. So then I came up with this plan. Like I was like, I'm going to get a fence. I'm going to fence them in, in their bed with treats and then I'll just close the curtains if the guy if I see the guy coming like I'll just close them I had the plan in mind I love that and it did just totally took off all the stress oh it was a miracle and then he came early and <sighs> I didn't have to worry about it at all <laughs> but it is just like sometimes you have you're like that's gonna happen and it's gonna ruin my day yeah like that's just that defeatist oh this stuff always happens to me why does he have to come right now <laughs> right yeah no I totally get that if you like take control and go things don't happen to me I have control of my life here's an obstacle how am I gonna face it how am I gonna overcome it plan for it you know it makes such a difference I love just that. in small ways and it could in big ways too yeah that's my experience yeah that's so interesting I'm so glad you used that MCI yeah there you learned go. about it yesterday used it today <laughs> didn't really need it but but you know uh, what it put my mind at ease implementation yes. <laughs> You know, just in case. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, we hope you feel inspired. Go do some meditation or something. Let us know if you feel like it helps. And we hope you do the end back test. See if it's hard or easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time as we talk about chapter nine. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss, and we'd love for you to weigh in. Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.